Good morning. So terrible. Like, honestly. Good morning. There we go. All right, take your Bibles, please, and uh, open them up to all the verses I'm going to refer to in this, uh, in this message today, because there's a lot of them, and it's just one of those series where we're not working on a single passage, but we're working on a lot. There's going to be a lot of different verses coming at us uh, throughout this series, in fact, but certainly in this message. We're going to put everything up on the screen for you, and if you have uh, your notes at hbc.info through your smartphone or tablet or if you're at home on your laptop or desktop, you can access those notes and download those and follow along with everything. Uh, the quotes I use and, and any other references or links are all going to be there in the notes at hbc.info. All right, so I wonder, I wonder if you know why you're here today. I wonder if you know why you're here, why, why you're here in the room or why you're watching on the live stream right now? Like, do you have a good understanding of the purpose for why you've come to be a part of this here today? Because by here, are you here today? Or why are you here today? I mean, are like, why are you here with the church? What is it about the church that compelled you today on like a freezing cold day, on a, on a day when, when you wake up and you just like look out the window, you just kind of know it's cold. You know that kind of day? Now the live stream people are saying, yeah, we looked out the window too. And we chose to stay home. But what brought you out? What made you turn in? Why tune in? Why are you here? What is it about the church that makes you want to be a part of it? That's such an important question, lest we just fall into the routine or some tradition of actually coming to be a part of this. And could it be, if I could offer a suggestion, could it be that the reason why we want to be here, want to be a part of all of this, is because the church provides you with hope. The church provides you with stability. That's just a couple of words. We could think of all kinds of things. It, it, the, the church offers comfort, that the church offers community. And that it offers it in a way that the world can't. Something that the world struggles to provide for us. Maybe that's why you want to be here. Well, this series is an exploration of the church. And, and specifically, it's an exploration of our church. What God has entrusted to us here at Harvest. And our elders and pastors uh, really want, um, want us, wanted us to dig into this series uh, to, to, to really have the best answer possible to that question I asked you off the top. Why are you here? Why do you want to be part of the church? We want to give you the best answer possible to that question. And so over the next seven weeks, uh, we're going to examine the distinctives that make Harvest the church that it is. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at the core beliefs that link us to all other gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, Bible-preaching, mission-oriented uh, churches in the world, and, and not only in the world today, but all churches that were like that throughout history. So when we think about We Are Harvest, this statement, this, the, the title for this series, We Are Harvest, it can sound kind of boastful, but it's not a boast, it's an aspiration. It's not, we are harvest. It's like, we are harvest, and we're trying to figure this out. We want to be the best version of ourselves that we can in light of God's intention for us as a church. 
It's not a boast, but an aspiration because we believe that we are, as the apostle Peter wrote, listen to this, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And in those verses, the apostle Peter captures for us identity, who we are, what our destination is, what our legacy is to be, and what our purpose and mission is li in life is all about, and as a church, what that's all about. And it's all packed into these two verses. And that's what we aspire to be. That's what we're aiming for. And so we are harvest. Here it is in your notes. We are harvest. First of all, an imperfect expression of the universal church. Harvest is an imperfect expression of the universal church. How many imperfect people here today? Just raise your hand if you're an imperfect person. I'm actually going to wait until everybody raises their hand, just so it's like everybody understands we're all imperfect, right? Chad, did you raise your hand? Okay, twice you raised your hand. Doubly imperfect. I love it. Well, harvest is imperfect, and it's made up of a bunch of imperfect people. It's an imperfect expression of the universal church. And we're going to use these two phrases, universal and local, to describe the church, first of all. But we have to understand, before we even get there, before we understand the two aspects of that, let's look at, first of all, what church means. What exactly is church? Well, the New Testament Greek word for church, what we understand in English to be church, is ekklesia. And ekklesia, um, in, its, in its most basic form in the original language, is literally the called out ones. And it explains our separation from the world. It explains our uniqueness from the world. At salvation, we were called out from the world and made part of the ecclesia, the called out ones. But beyond that, the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, the Jewish people wrote it in Hebrew, inspired by God in Hebrew, but it was eventually translated into Greek. And when they took a certain Hebrew word and translated into the Greek version of the Old Testament, they translated that into the word ecclesia, and that was the word assembly. And so not only is ecclesia the called out ones, called out from the world, but also we're called out to assemble, to be together, to be God's people. It, it describes for everyone, by the very nature of what it is, the uniqueness of what it means to be the church. And so Jonathan Lehman, he describes the universal church in this way. The universal church is a heavenly and eschatological assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ's new covenant and kingdom. And so, so it's unrestrained. The universal church is unrestrained by history. It's unrestrained by death. It's unrestrained by denominational affiliation. It's unrestrained by buildings. Like It has nothing to do with any of those things. The universal church is all of the believers of all time who have ever lived. That's what makes us part of the universal church. You, you're part of a church of all the believers of all time who have already lived and died. They're part of the universal church. You're part of the universal church. And in fact, 
all believers who have yet to be born or yet to be saved are still part of this universal church. So people that aren't even, by our accounting on the timeline, aren't even in the church yet, they're already in the church, you know, because, you know, God's affected all of these things before the foundation of the world. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's nothing happening tomorrow that's going to take God by surprise. Amen. And so God already knows all the people who are already going to be saved and are going to be part of the church. Their names are in the Lamb's book of life. That book already exists. Revelation is just writing down what's already been seen. And so, so listen, all the people of all time, past, present, future, are part of this universal church that we're all a part of as believers. But we are also called, so we are Harvest, an imperfect expression of the universal church. We are also called to be a distinctive local church. And that's where you are right now. You're in a distinctive local church. It's the visible church. It's what we can see of the church. And so it's, it's the people, it's the gatherings, it's the ministries, it's the programs, it's the, it's the community, it's the fellowship, it's the mission, it's even the building in some respects. It's all the things that we see and experience that we attach to this idea of being the church. Now, Jonathan Lehman, again, and I've given you a link in your notes to a, a Gospel Coalition article by Jonathan Lehman where he explains universal and local church in much more detail and much better than I have. So you can source that on your own. But here's a second quote. Now he's defining local church. A local church is a mutual, mutually affirming group of new covenant members and kingdom citizens identified by regularly gathering together in Jesus' name through preaching the gospel and celebrating uh, the ordinances. So that's a, that's a distinctive local church. That could describe and should describe us. And when we start thinking about local churches, listen, there's great diversity. If that's your base definition, there's great diversity that can then result in any given local church in different communities, different countries around the world, different neighborhoods even. Great diversity in how local churches are expressed. They can be, we can have local churches that are house churches, just a few people gathered in a living room or a family room, where, whereas they could also be mega churches with multiple campuses and multi-site and large auditoriums and thousands of people. Local church can also be very formal, very, very liturgical, very, very traditional, but it can also be very informal, just a gathering of people to study the word of God and to worship together. They can be very programmatic and centralized where everything happens on the main, in the main building. All the programs emanate from here. Or they can be very decentralized and gather in homes, very organic missional communities that are all throughout neighborhoods around a given city. And one of the things in, in just in the past year, of course, um, in, in late March, we joined a new network called Acts 29. And one of the things that's amazing about Acts 29 is the diversity in it. And Acts 29 is all about a, a few like core things that are super important. And if you uh, believe that these things are important, you can be part of it. So if, if you like theological clarity and you like missional innovation and, and you like gospel centrality, if you, if you like uh, these things, if you like cultural engagement, those are all things that Acts 29 churches all say, you know what, those are the things we're about. But then after that, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in Acts 29. So there are some churches in Acts 29 that would have a much more former, for, formal liturgy or worship pattern than we would have. Acts 29 churches that would be more about hymns. Acts 29 uh, churches that would be far more centralized or far more, far more uh, denominational even than we are. 
And that diversity we see as something that is to be celebrated because there are churches within Acts 29 that can reach people that we would have difficulty reaching with our particular style of ministry. So we're so grateful to be part of a network that has that kind of diversity, but we also see that kind of diversity right here in the city of Barrie and in Simcoe County. Now listen, having said that, all that diversity, God has called us to be a certain kind of local church that we recognize that we share primary convictions with other biblical local churches, but that we differ on a great many other things. And sometimes it can be very, very challenging to sort that all out. What are the things that are most important to us where we would look at another church and go, you know what, I don't think that's even a biblical church versus, hey, this thing's kind of less important. It's important to us, but it's less important in terms of seeing that church as, as a church that really does love Jesus and, and does love the Bible and, and is on mission. And so I want to show you this chart because this is just like kind of working out what we believe and it looks like really extensive and I'm not going to go into any great detail with, with it right now. But again, it's in your notes if you want to access it and look at it further. But this is what Harvest believes and practices. So we're just going to work through this, but primary, primary uh, things that we believe, not, these are non-negotiables. A church that doesn't believe, teach, and practice these things is not a legitimate New Testament church. It's just not. As we look through this, one God, Lord of all. We're monotheistic. We believe in one God, and He is sovereign and Lord of, over everything. We believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures, that the Holy Spirit breathed out the Word of God to human authors, but it's inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three. We believe in the deity of Christ, we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that there was no other way for us to be saved, but that Christ would substitute his own life for ours, that, that his sinlessness would cover our sinfulness. Salvation by faith alone, this is critical. This was the major tenet of the Protestant Reformation and still so important today that we continue to preach that salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. We're gospel-centered. We believe in the uh, blessed hope of Christ's return in glory. These are non-negotiables. If a church doesn't believe these things, it's not a New Testament church. But then we have all these other things that we believe that we're categorizing into secondary and tertiary beliefs. And, and the reality is, even as I went through the list and went back and forth with the pastors and what should be in which column, that there was still a lot of discussion about where things belonged. I think this is secondary. I think this is tertiary. And there was some back and forth going on. So I think this is all open still for some discussion about which of the two columns it belongs in. But for sure, none of these things belong in primary. None of these things are, are something that we would look at and go, well, if a church believes this, it's not a biblical church. These are all secondary issues or tertiary issues. So we look at it, secondary. These are important. They're not changing for us. We're not reviewing them. But if another church believes otherwise, it's a partner in the gospel ministry. So we have a particular way, for example, of viewing the expression of the charismatic gifts, the more miraculous gifts. There are some churches that believe all the gifts have ceased. There are some churches where the gifts, the miraculous gifts are expressed every single week in open worship uh, times. And uh, we're somewhere in between those two things. We believe that God can give the gifts to anybody at any time, but we're just not seeing those expressed all the time uh, like another church might see them. And so we have a particular way of looking at that. Other churches have different ways of looking at it. We all love Jesus. We're all going after the same thing. Credo baptism or believer's baptism as opposed to infant baptism, that's secondary. 
Reformed doctrine, as opposed to other ways of looking at of the Word of God and, and approaching a doctrine. We, we come from a Reformed perspective. We believe in expository preaching. That means that we take the Word of God and we want to get the message. It just seems so simple, but expository preaching is we get the message from the Bible and deliver that. It's not, hmm, I wonder what I should preach this week and, and looking for the Bible to support the thing I want to preach. We don't do that. We're getting the Word of God open every week. Most, most weeks, we're working verse by verse through, through the Scriptures to hear a word from God. That's expository preaching. We have a missional focus on making disciples and church planting. We believe in creation ex nihilo or creation from nothing in six days. We believe in a complementarian approach to leadership. In other words, male-only elders. Those are secondary issues, though. Okay, there are other Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, on-mission churches that believe different than that. And we celebrate that. We're fine with it. Tertiary. These are part of our identity and approach to ministry, but we celebrate again the diversity when another church does it differently. We have a certain approach to church membership. We use the ESV translation of the scriptures. Another church might use a different one. We have an elder governance approach. There are lots of churches that are congregational or denominational. We're uh, elder governed. We have a certain approach to ministry. We have a certain small group model. We have contemporary worship. We have a view of the end times that is a progressive dis dispensational eschatology. And we'll get into that in the Revelation series that's coming up this spring. Now that we look at that chart and we just go like, all of these things are important, but we're not approaching all three columns with the same level or the same intensity. And the balance of this series is going to go after much of what we see in the secondary and tertiary columns, because the first column is like, that's settled doctrine for us. And that's settled doctrine. It ought to be settled doctrine for every New Testament, legit New Testament church. And so local churches, now that's local. So we've talked about universal. We've talked about local churches and what we believe in particular. Now, I need to say this that local churches are not to be confused with the universal church. The universal church is the body of Christ, all believers, all time. All true believers from all of history form the universal church with Christ as the head. It is not, listen to me now, it is not local churches. It's not like all the local churches together form the universal church. That's not it. Individual believers form the universal church. And local churches are this imperfect expression of that universal church. They're a faint reflection of it because almost certainly, and I'll just say this about our church, almost certainly there are members of Harvest Bible Chapel, like baptized, professing faith in Jesus, signed on the dotted line, members of the church who are not saved. That's part of the imperfectness of a local church, that there can be members who are not genuinely saved, but who are part of a local church. That's why it's not local churches that are the, that, that are the make up all of those, make up the universal church. It's individual, genuine believers who do. Further, and I'll say this, local churches come and go. The universal church does not come and go. It's universal and it's eternal. But local churches come and go because the assembly of God's people in any particular city or area or neighborhood is not in and of itself eternal, nor should it be. 
In fact, many local churches should be put to rest. Like post the notice, have the funeral, put them in the ground, cover it over. Here lays XYZ Community Church. Why? Because they lost their way and they were no longer focused on the gospel. They lost sight of what it means to be a biblical local church. But individual believers, like genuine believers who are in those local churches, are indeed part of Christ's body for all eternity. All right, so that kind of sets us up with all of that is just some, a word on the church and understanding what the church in general is, what the local church is, what the universal church is. That's an introduction to the whole series. And so we are Harvest, an imperfect expression of the universal church called to be a distinctive local church. Now we kind of jump into, here's the first message now. What do we need to talk about in light of that? We are Harvest, and as such, we have one foundation, Jesus Christ. Amen? We have one foundation, Jesus Christ. And there's a warning for us here because churches that undermine their foundation, churches that undermine the person and work of Jesus Christ, lose their moral authority to be a church. They have no legitimate claim to actually be a church. If you see a church in decline or you see a church that's dying, or you see a church that has closed, some news story about some church that is closed. You need to ask yourself the question, why'd that happen to that church? Every one of those is a warning for us. Why did that happen to that church? And it comes back to that first question I asked right off the top that I asked you personally. Why are you here? Why do you want to be part of the church? But now change it for a church that's closing that you know about. You're asking the question, why don't people want to be there? What is it about that church that has rebelled people, uh, repelled people? And more often than not, you're going to find, not always, but more often than not, you're going to find that it's because they changed what they believed about Jesus. You just go back through their history. They changed what they believed about Jesus. It might have been three decades ago and they hung on by their fingernails and they ran programs and they pretended they were a church, but they had undermined who Jesus was and what they believed about him. And eventually that caught up with them and their time ran out. Because when it comes right down to it, what we believe about Jesus is the starting point, is the most important thing we can believe. It is the foundation for everything else. The Apostle Paul wrote this. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. He had founded the church. Here's, here's Paul. He comes. 1 Corinthians 3, he's writing to me. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, the grace of God given to him was his calling to apostolic service. It was, his, it was his mandate and his mission to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach Christ, and to, to, to form local churches in the cities where he preached. That's what he's talking about when he says, according to the grace of God given to me, the calling I was given as apostle, like a skilled master builder. Now he's going to use this 
Is it a metaphor or a simile? I'm not sure. Which one is it? Any, any English teachers here? Is it a metaphor or a simile? It, it's a simile because the word like is there, right? You remember your English class? Anybody twitching right now? High school English. Ugh, ugh. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, he's going to use this illustration for himself, I laid a foundation. I came and preached the gospel to found this church, and this is the foundation I, I laid. It's Jesus Christ. And then he says, now, I'm not there, I'm writing you a letter. He says, other people are building on it. Someone else is building upon it. Your pastors, your preachers, your elders, your small group leaders, your coaches, itinerant evangelists and missionaries who are coming through, they're all building on top of the foundation of the gospel that I have laid down with you. Someone else is building upon it. Then he says, here's the warning, let each one take care how he builds on it. Anything, anything we put on the foundation has to be consistent with that foundation. It's all about Jesus. Jesus and the word of God inform every aspect of every other bit of building material that goes in to the, to the house that, and how the local church is put together. Because Paul says here, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is, notice in your notes, he is the solid rock on which we stand. He is the solid rock on which he stand, we stand. And so, I just made this little list because I thought, like, what are some of the other foundations that people try to build on? What are some of the other emphases that, that people put on or into their local church? Here's one thing I'll say is that, um, you know, one thing that we're not as a church, and this is so important, we're not a political lobby group. That's controversial these days, isn't it? The church of Jesus Christ, if it's based in who Christ is, it's not a political lobby group. It's not a social club. It's not a service agency. It's not an educational institution, even though we teach, it's not an educational institution. It's not an activist organization seeking societal change. And for that matter, the church is not even, shall I be controversial again? It's not even a religious group. Each of those entities and all of these kinds of organizations, they exist in our, in our, in our city even. Political lobby group, not a bad thing. Social club, not a bad thing. Service agency, not a bad thing. Educational institutions, not a, these are all good things. But all of these institutions, all of these entities stand on the foundation that goes no deeper than human effort and human ingenuity. We want something deeper. We want something that's founded on the, on the rock of Jesus Christ. You know, you think about all the turning point moments in the gospels as you're reading through the gospels and certainly the crucifixion is a turning point and 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 when he dies on the cross and when he's resurrected is like a critical historical like dividing moment in history turning point but before all of that one of the critical turning points happens 
in a conversation that Jesus has with Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus goes up to Peter and he says, who do people say that I am? I've been preaching for a while. I've been doing miracles. People are talking. What are they saying? Who do people say that I am? And Peter, who's always, it seems, the first one, ooh, 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 first one to say, you know, he's the first one who's going to answer all the questions. And if you, if you know the gospel and Peter, you know that most often he got it wrong. He was like eager to answer the question. You got to admire that about him. He's so bold, but often he got it wrong. But this time when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Peter gets it right. In verse 17, in fact, Jesus says to him, you know, Peter, you got it right, but I got to tell you, you didn't come up with this on your own. The father told you this. The father told you this. The father whispered this in your ear and gave you the answer. But it's the right answer, Peter. You got it exactly right. Who do people say that I am? Peter says this in verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, back to English grammar for a second, because I know y'all think this is so exciting. But reference are so important. The this in this rock refers to what? It's so important that we find out what the this is. To what is Jesus referring? Now, Catholics believe that this rock refers to Peter himself. You are Peter, and on this rock, Peter, and they play that because there is some, there's some wordplay going on here. Peter's name does mean rock. And so Jesus is kind of, they see it as Jesus paralleling it to Peter himself. And so they have this conviction that Peter was the first, the first pope. Because they believe that the church was going to be built on Peter. But that's not how the text reads. That's not what the referent is. The reference is not to Peter himself but to his declaration about Jesus. It's what Peter said. And in fact, it's not even the declaration so much as Jesus himself who embodies the declaration. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That declaration is the rock. The person of whom that declaration speaks is the rock. It's, it's Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here with the wordplay that's going on is, hey, you know how your name is Peter? You know how your name is the rock? Well, let me tell you about a rock. The thing you said is a rock. The declaration is a rock. I myself am the rock. On this rock, on this declaration about me, I will build my church. And so what is it? This, this should make us step back and go, so what is it about Jesus that has to be believed? What makes him the rock? Or as, as Paul writes, what makes him the foundation beneath our feet? Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the Savior, the promised one. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And every one of those words is packed with meaning about who he is 
and why he ought to be the foundation of this church and of your life. And in fact, if I could just read for a moment this, this little creedal statement that's also in your notes, this captures the full essence of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is fully God, eternally preexistent and creator of all things. He is also fully human, having been born of a virgin who conceived by the Holy Spirit, and as a human, he was tempted to sin. Yet, having never done so, he took our punishment for sin upon himself by dying on the cross, his life for ours. He died, was buried, and yet rose from the grave, and having been seen alive by many witnesses, he ascended to heaven. And from there, he mediates for us before the throne, awaiting the day when he will come again, this time in all his glory, to take us to himself for all eternity. That is what we must believe about Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. We are harvest. And to use another phrase that the apostle used just a chapter before in 1 Corinthians 2, we have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the whole thing. This is all we preach is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And every way that we can continue to remind ourselves of this, to bring this back to our memory, memory to keep recentering ourselves in the midst of a world that keeps trying to draw us off that mark, away from that foundation, Anything we can do to help that is going to be beneficial to us. So I learned this little outline back in college, which was many, many years ago, decades in fact. And they were originally called the five fundamentals of the faith, the five fundamentals of the faith. And they were written in the early 1920s as a way to combat growing um, rationalism and liberalism that was uh, infiltrating uh, the church and academia, theological uh, schools. And so these five fundamentals were written um, back then, and they were obviously, uh, when you see them, you're going to see that they were obviously written by Baptists because they all start with a V and they're nicely alliterated. And Baptists do that kind of thing. So I'm going to call these the core five, what we're willing to die for. And hopefully this is helpful for you in, in seeing what's so essential for us. The core five, a verbal inspiration of the Bible, because it has to start with the authoritative word of God and how God has spoken to us. Secondly, the virgin birth of Christ, which speaks to his incarnation and his perfection which is so important, again, because he's going to give his life for sinful people, so he himself needed to be sinless. The vicarious atonement of Christ, that's uh, his life for ours. Uh, that's uh, speaking to the cross, obviously, in his death. The victorious resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb, and our hope, which is rooted in the visible return of Christ. Now, you lock those things in. I've, I've known those five things since I first learned them as, uh, you know, back in my 20s, which is, again, more than three decades ago. And, and to learn these and have them locked in and know them and realize these are never going to be compromised. And a church that is gospel-centered will hold tenaciously to the core five. We'll be on mission for Christ in this world. Be willing to lose associations and be thought poorly of, be persecuted, be shut down for believing these things. A church that believes these things should be willing to be limited and have restrictions put on it. Its leaders and members should be prepared to be arrested, to be beaten, to be imprisoned, or even to give their lives as martyrs. 
That's how important the core five are. We can't compromise on these even a little bit. We can't take one of them away. We can't take half of one of them away without eroding the foundation and becoming something other than a New Testament church. If we compromise on these, if Harvest Bible Chapel ever compromises on any of these core five, shut her down, sell the building, and give the money to somebody who's still proclaiming the gospel. Amen? Let's shut her down. Not here to entertain or make anybody feel good in their life apart from the gospel. It's always only going to be about Jesus Christ. Any church that has abandoned the core five is no longer a New Testament church. And so for us as a church, but also for you as an individual believer, certainly applicable also to your family, we have to ensure that harvest is set firmly on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And that's the point that Jesus makes. Now we're going to go into the gospel to just see the point that Jesus is making with the, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. You remember this one? Uh, the wise and foolish builders, if you, if you grew up in the church, going to maybe a more formal, different kind of church, a more formal church, or a Baptist church, or Brethren church, you learn the song, the wise man built his house, you know the actions, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. We learn the actions, we learn the song, and that's what we have here. We want to ensure that harvest is set firmly on the rock of Jesus Christ, and this is what Jesus says about it. And by the way, this comes in two different Gospels. It's in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, the account of the wise and foolish builders comes right at the end of the most important sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached this, this, this sermon about what the radically uh, dissimilar life of a Christian should look like. And then right at the end, he pops this story about wise and foolish builders. And, he, and it's basically... The appeal to us right at the end, are you going to listen to the thing that I've just preached to you? Are you going to live this out or did you just hear it and it's just going to go in one year, in one ear and out the other? So this is, this is the high impact you need to reconsider your life response conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. And that's right at the end of Matthew chapter 7. But the account in Luke chapter 6 is the one I want to take us to. In Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 48, this is what we read. This is Jesus telling the story. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you come to church? Okay, that's what he's saying. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why is this so important to you? Why are you here today? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? I mean, I just preached a sermon to you, Jesus is saying to them. I, I just brought this sermon to you. Now you've heard it, but that's not enough. This is about obeying the word of God, doing what Jesus says to do. Everyone, he says, everyone who first comes to me, notice three things, who comes to me and hears my word, secondly, and does them thirdly, okay, this person You've come, that's great, you're here. You're hearing the word of God, that's awesome. But will you do it? It's always that third one, right? I'm here, I'm hearing it, but will I do it? And that's what Jesus is going after. I'll show you what he's like. So someone who comes, someone who hears, someone who does, this is what they're like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, 
And when a flood arose, when things got really hard in life, when people were assaulting you for what you believe or some trial was coming your way, something that was, that was coming right against your faith in Christ, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it. Why? Jesus says, because it had been well built. The builder dug deep into the ground, all the way down to the bedrock, and then started building his house up. Because that builder knew, see this next in your notes, that all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus alone provides a foundation that guarantees that we as a church will not be moved when storms come and when we're hit with destructive forces that would mean to take our church out. Everything else, everything else is sinking sand. The foundation must be Jesus himself. Otherwise, we have no guarantee against the storm. For example, let me go through some of these and tell you, this is a bad foundation, okay? This is a bad foundation for a church. A church that teaches doctrine, only doctrine, always doctrine. It's always, we got the Bible open, we're going through it, we're communicating information, go to this class, do this thing. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine to the exclusion of everything else that a church ought to be. The foundation of the church cannot be doctrine. It's sinking sand. Social justice. Our church is all about social justice, some leaders will say. We're all about reaching our community and impacting those who are vulnerable and those on the margin. We're a social justice, social action church. If that's your foundation, it's sinking sand. Compassion. We're a compassion church. God told us to love people and we're loving people. And so everything we do is about compassion. We founded it on love for people. Sinking sand. It's the wrong foundation. Worship style. We're a contemporary church. We're an organ and hymn book church. We only sing the Psalms. This church is founded on, on proper worship and right worship and this style. It's sinking sand. Your liturg liturgical form in worship or a particular ministry methodology. We're a church of small groups. We're a centralized church. We have lots of, we're a programmatic church. We have lots of programs for you. We're about missional communities. Our people are all meeting out in the community. This church is, is based on this methodology. Sinking sand. A method can't be your foundation. An eschatological view, we believe that Jesus is coming back. We believe that the rapture could happen anytime. We believe there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. We believe there's going to be a thousand-year millennium or we don't believe any of those things. We believe it's all already happened and we're gonna help the world get better until Jesus comes back and his kingdom is established on earth. And if your church is based on that or any other of the hundred different views of the end times, it's sinking sand. 
If that's your emphasis and all you're looking for, and let's hear this report from Israel. Let's hear how all these different things are pointing to him coming. If that's the thing you're fixated on and founded on, it's sinking sand. Any of the things that were in the chart I showed earlier, any of the things that were in the secondary and tertiary columns are sinking sand. The denomination you belong to, we're stable, we're strong as a church because we belong to this denomination. Our foundation is our roots, it's our history, it's our traditions. Sinking sand. Sinking sand. Our church is founded on an exceptional leader with extraordinary gifts. God is using him. And we're expanding around North America. And we'll have him on video in all these different cities. Such an incredible gift that he has. He's the brand. And we're building our church on the basis of this brand. Well, that's really sinking sand. That guy could be snuffed out in an instant, and many have been. It's not that any of these things are bad things. Every one of them, in fact, can be an absolute blessing to a church. We should teach doctrine. We should be into social justice and alleviating the suffering of those in the margins. We should for sure be compassionate because Jesus says, and he commanded us to love people. We're going to have a whole message on that. We should have a well-thought-out worship style that fits with our community and context. We should have a liturgical form that people are drawn into the presence of God. We should have a very well-defined ministry methodology and approach to how we do things. We should have an eschatological view. We should know as best we can what's going to play out in the end times. All those secondary and tertiary beliefs are important. A denomination can be important, a network and association. History and tradition should not be despised. And it's not wrong at all to have exceptional gifts. But none of those things can be the foundation. They can be part of the structure of the house that's built. Paul said, I laid the foundation. Others came along and built on it. And all of these things that I've mentioned are part of the house. But that house has to be on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you make any of these other things the foundation, the house will crumble when the storm comes. I mean, I tread into dangerous territory when I start to talk about things I don't know anything about. But I've seen enough houses built in the 21 years that Cheryl and I have lived here in Barrie. I've seen enough houses built to know that the way they build houses in our subdivisions is a, 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 a digger comes in and digs a hole and they go down down into the ground. And if there isn't any natural bedrock there, I know what they do. They pour footings in with concrete. Then they bring forms and they set those forms up. And if you've ever watched this happen, the cement truck comes and puts concrete into all of those forms until the foundation is built. Digger comes back and fills in all around that foundation. And then someone comes and starts laying probably two by eights, but I probably am Speaking in ignorance right now, and floorboards start to be laid down, and two-by-fours start going up to build walls. Insulation is put in, drywall, brick. Eventually, they'll put 
shingles up on the roof and windows in, and all of it is part of the building of the house, but you can't take any of those building materials and, and use them simply on the ground. You can't simply arrive in a subdivision, push back all the dirt, level out the ground, and start laying out your two-by-eights for the floor. There's no foundation. The house will never stand under those conditions. So look what Jesus says here. Verse 49, he now turns his attention to the one who's not obeying the word of God. The one who hears and does not do them, does not obey the word, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. We didn't dig down. We didn't put footings. We didn't put in forms. We didn't pour concrete. Just started laying out two by eights. He, laid the, he built the house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, when the storm came, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now, often when we hear this story told or we see pictures of it, the pictures of the two houses are usually like this. The house of the guy who built it without reference to the word of God, without a foundation is always, he's down on the beach in the sand. And the other house is up here on a rock away from the water coming in. And that's not it at all. That's not the picture that the scriptures give us. These two houses are built side by side. These are two lots in the same subdivision. The difference between the two houses is not where they're built, but the fact that the one builder dug down into the ground to the bedrock and then built his house on a foundation that you may not even see. From ground level, this is the startling thing. These two houses look the same. To the casual observer, looking at one church versus another might look the same. But do they have the same foundation? Because they're not the same at all if below the surface, one church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the other one is not. Charles Spurgeon said this, and it applies again to churches. It applies to us as individuals and families. You will never be on the right foundation until you're off the wrong one. You'll never be on the right foundation of Jesus Christ until you're off the wrong foundation. And again, what's true for you and me as individuals and for our families is no less true for a church. And if you want as an individual Christian, if you're saying, you know what, I want the foundation of my life to be on Jesus Christ and that's what I want for my marriage and that's what I want for my family, then if that's true for you, then you better make sure that the church that you're in is a church that's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ too. That's what we ought to be going after. Now here's the thing, there's echoes. I know if, if you've been around for a while, you already know and Ian's playing it. But the last two sub points point to that old hymn. It seemed only appropriate to have that as our response to this message. This is the way we're going to say, I came, I heard, now I'm going to obey what your word says. I want Jesus Christ as the foundation of my life. So Amber's going to sing this for us. You sing along with her. You stand and uh, declare this to be 
your commitment to having Jesus Christ as the foundation of your life. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. that stays with you this week. I hope you just keep playing. That's the hymn that could just kind of stay in our hearts and minds. You want to review any part of this, it's in the notes. There was another section of this sermon that I, I just had to take out in the interest of time, but also just in terms of focus. I needed this to be more about the church and its foundation, but there's a whole section on personal foundations that we try to build our lives on that are not Jesus. And I'm going to post that as a social media uh, post this week too. And maybe that'll be helpful for you personally to think through, is my life personally, is it built on something other than Jesus? So I'll put that out for you. Hopefully that'll be helpful uh, to you as well. So we're looking forward to the rest of this series, six more messages as we kind of work through uh, everything that we believe as a church here at Harvest. Loved having this time with you here today. If you're a guest here in the room, stop by Guest Central. And if you're a guest on the live stream, let us know. We'd love to get a gift into your hand and thank you for being here today. I hope you have a great week in the Lord. You're loved.